Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. This is Religion Today with Martin Tanner, a weekly look at religion and spirituality here at home and around the world. Now, here's your host, Martin Tanner. Welcome. This is Religion Today. I'm your host, Martin Tanner. Today is July 24th in Utah, known as Pioneer Day, honoring the arrival of the Latter-day Saints into the Salt Lake Valley. Today, in honor of their incredible strength, perseverance, and the things that they accomplished, I'd like to do something that I've decided to call the rest of the story. Maybe some of the tidbits about early church history, including the pioneer story, that many of you will not have heard. And I'd like to start off at the very beginning, and that is with the first vision. Most members of the LDS faith and many others have heard about Joseph Smith's first vision, but the question for many people that they have either not thought of or don't really know the answer to is, when did the first vision occur? The short answer is no one knows for sure, but the very best guess is that it happened on Palm Sunday on March 26th of 1820. And the reason for that is because it could not have happened earlier because the Smith family was involved in collecting maple syrup, or excuse me, maple sap to make maple syrup and maple sugar. And after that date, there were a couple of Snowstorms. So this was sort of the little break in New England weather when the first vision would have been possible as described by Joseph Smith. No, for absolute certainty, no, but very likely. Palm Sunday, March 26, 1820. Point number two, the rest of the story. Many people today question the story about the golden plates a stone box, those kinds of things. The people in Joseph Smith's time never did because many people, not just the formal witnesses, but many others actually saw and felt the plates. And even more than that, many people saw the stone box that was left empty after the golden plates were removed from the hill Cumorah. The locals believed the account so completely that for the next couple of decades, those who were trying to profit from finding other similar treasures or artifacts dug up the hill Cumorah and cut down most all of the trees that were on the hill Cumorah. When Joseph Smith acquired the plates, it was a lush hill with trees 
on almost all of it. If you were to take a look at one of the wonderful photographs that date from about 1900, it's almost completely devoid of trees. Why? Because treasure hunters dug holes all over in the hill and cut down all the trees trying to find treasure. They believe the story. It's only modern skeptics who didn't see the stone box and didn't know about so many seeing and touching the plates. Only the modern people are skeptics. The rest of the story about the three witnesses. Have you ever wondered what actually happened to them? Well, David Whitmer left the church. Ultimately, he died in 1888. He believed the story of the angel and retold it and retold it and retold it until the time of his death because he had seen it and he did not deny it. He had other issues with the church and the way it was run, but he believed in the Book of Mormon and in the golden plates because he saw them in open vision. Martin Harris left the church for a time and then came back. He died in 1875, a little bit earlier than David Whitmer, in Utah. He died in a little town called Clarkston, Utah, that's in Cache Valley. And it's a beautiful place. And Martin Harris gave sermon after sermon after sermon in that area to people whenever he was invited, talking about his actual knowledge of the plates because he had seen them in the angel in vision. Oliver Cowdery died the very earliest. He died in 1850. Oliver was always a frail little guy. He was probably no more than 120 pounds and quite thin. He ultimately died in 1850 of tuberculosis, which at the time was called consumption. And he also never denied and always reaffirmed that he had seen the plates and the angel. All right, next topic. Whatever happened to those who were responsible for killing Joseph Smith and Hiram in Nauvoo? The short answer is that at the heart of their efforts to kill Joseph Smith was one guy, a guy by the name of Thomas Sharp, who was the owner of a newspaper called the Warsaw Signal in the next town. And he was the one who whipped up the mob to kill Joseph Smith and Hiram. How do we know that? It's published in his newspaper. He was very open about it. His newspaper editorial said, we're done listening, get your guns. He talked about powder and ball, which is a reference to the way bullets were made at the time. And let's go get these guys. That's the gist of what he said. And shortly after, Joseph and Hiram were killed. A trial was actually held accusing him of the murder of Joseph Smith and Hiram, but a jury acquitted him, a jury of his peers, meaning those who lived in the city where he was the newspaper editor. The next issue that I thought would be fascinating to talk about a little bit is what has happened to church historical sites. One of those is 
the Nauvoo Temple. When the church built the Nauvoo Temple, the new Nauvoo Temple, it was on the same location as the previous Nauvoo Temple. So what happened to the original Nauvoo Temple? The answer is that it was never quite completed. Joseph Smith and Hiram were killed in 1844. By 1846, the Latter-day Saints had been really pushed hard to leave. And, of course, finally, they left in 1846 and, and went to winter quarters. And in 1847, they left for Utah Territory. A few people were left in Nauvoo to complete the temple. And they almost got it done. It was finally dedicated, but the church trying to sell it was not quite successful. An arsonist set it on fire, and ultimately it never fell into the hands of anyone other than the bankers who repossessed it. And it wasn't worth much at that point in time. After the fire and after a tornado that had actually come through destroyed several of the other walls, what was left was just one wall, and many of the stone pieces of that temple were carted away for other projects. That brings us to how it was saved, and the answer to that is a fascinating story because... It leads to a guy named Wilford Wood. Wilford Wood was a very successful Latter-day Saint businessman who a lot of people haven't heard of, yet he's responsible single-handedly for salvaging and obtaining, again, many church historical sites. We'll talk more about Wilford Wood and about some of these historical sites, including the site for the Nauvoo Temple, when we come back. I'm Martin Tanner. This is Religion Today on our The Rest of the Story on Pioneer Day. Stay tuned. Religion Today with Martin Tanner continues on KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. We're back. I'm Martin Tanner. This is Religion Today. The topic for today's broadcast is sort of the rest of the story of incidents in church history, of which most people are not aware. I hope you enjoy hearing some of the rest of the story about details of church history. If you have a question or comment about this program or about religious question, feel free to send me an email. Send it to martinstanner at gmail.com, martinstanner at gmail.com. Now, a little bit more about Wilford Wood. Wilford was a successful Latter-day Saint. He was in the fur business. He bought and sold for coats and furs in in other contexts, which uh, seems horrible today. But during that time period, it was a very respectable way to make a living. He single-handedly led efforts that resulted in the acquisition of the Nauvoo Temple site from bankers. He 
helped acquire Liberty Jail. He was involved in the purchase of Adamon Diamond. And if one were to go to Nauvoo Temple, of course, it's been rebuilt. We don't know all the details about how the inside of the original Nauvoo Temple would have compared to the outside. But the outside is identical, except that the angel Moroni at the top is standing up rather than flying through the air horizontally. Other than that, you wouldn't notice the difference. Liberty Jail has been saved and renovated. Adam on Diamon and many, many other lands close to it have been acquired by the church also as the result of the efforts of Wilford Wood. He also helped acquire the Newell K. Whitney store for restoration and the John Johnson farm. He helped acquire the Hale property in Harmony, Pennsylvania, where the Aaronic priesthood was restored. He's just an absolutely marvelous guy. And he also reprinted first editions, uh, and I have some of these, that they're just really well done, of the first edition of the Book of Mormon, of the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Book of Commandments, and the Articles of Faith, the very, very first editions of those. There's He's just an unsung hero of early LDS church history. He um, acquired from the Bank of Nauvoo in 1937 the lot where the Nauvoo Temple had once stood. And it was because of that and other efforts that the church was able to reacquire this property that allowed for the reconstruction of the Nauvoo Temple. He did other things. He acquired an original uncut 1830 edition of the Book of Mormon. He purchased and acquired for the church Joseph Smith and Hiram's original genuine death masks from when they were killed. It was, for those who aren't familiar, the custom of the day for preserving the appearance of someone that if they died... um, there was plaster that was poured on their faces and left to dry and then removed, and hence you had a cast from which someone's likeness could be preserved. He was just a, a marvelous man, and uh, he ought to be revered and known a bit more than, than he is. So let's get on to the pioneer story in a little bit more detail. If one were to ask, where did the Latter-day Saints come from to get into the valley? Well, the answer would be that their final encampment, as they were coming into the valley from the north of Salt Lake City, was just a little bit north of Little Dell Reservoir. And here's a little tidbit that's not very well known that's Wonderful for the Latter-day Saints, but tragic at the sacrifice that it took. The Donner Party, the ill-fated Donner Party that got stuck in the Sierra Nevadas, went down the same path through what's called Hastings Cutoff. And it took them so long to cut their way through the scrub oak and underbrush to get them into Salt Lake Valley and across the Great Salt Lake Desert, that they didn't quite make it before winter storms, and many of them perished. 
But for the Latter-day Saints, their efforts were a godsend and made it so they did not meet the same fate. The very next year, after the Donner Party, in 1847, the Mormon pioneers came down and were able to get into the Salt Lake Valley probably a full month sooner on July 21st of 1847. An advance party came in after going through the route that the Donner Party took. An amazing point here is what the valley looked like. It's common for people to say that the Salt Lake Valley was absolutely desolate, that it looked like just a bunch of scrub brush and there was hardly a tree there. The truth is a little bit different. There were not many large trees at all because if there was a lightning strike, it would burn everything in the valley up, or at least most everything in the valley up, because there was, of course, no one there with the means to put such a fire out. But the original three who came into the valley on the 21st of July described it as being lush and beautiful with grass along the banks of the, of the six little rivers that went into the Jordan River as being over the height of man's head. And where did they first camp? The very first camp is just a block or two east of Salt Lake Community College campus on, on State Street. It's a, it's a neat little small little park, just a, a jumble of, of large rocks, frankly, but it's the location where the original three camped. It looked beautiful to the pioneers. And so when uh, Brigham Young came in and the rest of the saints came in, they thought they were in paradise. Other myth about it is that it was unoccupied. It's not true. The Paiutes lived in the area. There was an elderly Indian named Tukapit, who you can find his photograph in the uh, Salt Lake, in the Utah archives in Salt Lake City. And he saw the pioneers come into the valley. There are some really wonderful photographs of him. The Ute Indians, excuse me, the Paiute Indians lived along the Jordan River and fished the river. There were also Indians, Native Americans, to the south along what we now call Utah Lake. They were called the Timpanogi Indians, Timpanogi in their language meaning fish. And so they were called the fish-eating Indians, the fish eaters. That was name of their tribe because they ate a lot of fish. Another fascinating misconception about the valley is that the pioneers immediately built log cabins. They didn't. They lived actually underground in these big troughs that had... Uh, wood overlaying the top the very first year because they did not have time to plant crops and also build log cabins. Most of the cabins were built the very next year in 1848. It was a very rough winter, and where they lived is very close to what is now called Pioneer Park for obvious reasons. When the pioneers came into the valley, the, the main group they pulled into a circle at the location of the old city and county building that's at about 350 South and uh, State Street on the east side of the street there. Beautiful location. That's the original 
place. There is an incredible amount of effort and sacrifice that went into Salt Lake Valley. Some other very little known facts, but that will at least give you a few more additional things of which you may not have previously been aware about the Pioneer Trek West and what the Salt Lake Valley was like. Join me again next week. I'm Martin Tanner. This is Religion Today. A gun in the face. Then all of a sudden they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.